News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hi, Harry Siegel. Hello. It's Wednesday, and in a minute, we're going to be talking to Mark Canizzaro, the president of the Council of Schools, Supervisors, and Administrators, so the chief of the uh, Principals Union, if you like. Uh, but before we get to that, Mayor Bill de Blasio finally visited Rikers this week for the first time this term in more than four years after all these other elected officials went there and talked about the horrific conditions. De Blasio went, no press there, did not speak to any uh, prisoners there, did not speak to any COs who were working there, and uh, left and said, we've got to to fix things without saying too much about what that meant. Meantime, in court, uh, the city belatedly agreed, also after a good deal of humiliation and public shame, to submit to most of what the federal monitor is asking for, and the city had not been providing. But this still looks like a running disaster and one that's going to end up on the plate of Mayor, presumably, Eric Adams, who says he wants to close Rikers, now scheduled to close in 2027, but has not signed on to the plan to build the jails in the boroughs that would replace uh, Rikers so that there's a place to hold some prisoners. And that seems to be the uh, state of play. This is a giant public disaster. De Blasio just wants the humiliation to end and the news cycle to move on. Adams doesn't want to commit himself to too much before he's in office and has actual power. And in the meantime, this is a, uh, a, a moral disaster. If you think people who are imprisoned, often just awaiting trial, are even human beings. Chrissy? Hey. Well, I mean, Harry, I think I'd put a, a slight asterisk slash correction on your use of the term prisoners, because I think part of the beef, part of the issue, part of the problem, part of the outrage is that so many people in Rikers actually aren't prisoners. They are literally just citizens who are waiting for their day in court. They're, well, they're, they're, they're waiting. not convicts. They're not convicts, no, right? But they are not prisoners. They're, they're imprisoned, but they are yeah. not prisoners themselves. They are sometimes innocent people who happen to be caged up uh, in mm-hmm. a system that is failing them consistently. So, you know, I think about uh, the Envision Freedom Fund, which is formerly the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund and the work that they're doing, uh, because, you know, when I talk to my students all the time, it's like, so you and I commit the same offense. I've got bail money and you don't. And you sit there and languish for days, weeks, months, sometimes years. And we've done the same thing. And so I'm I'm a productive citizen. I'm going to work. I'm with my family. I'm not you know, subject to the traumas and the horrors that so many people are in Rikers. The fact that Bill de Blasio has not been to Rikers in four years. I mean, I'm thinking about that cartoon you posted today on your Twitter feed, um, which is so (laughs) funny because I feel like we have conversations via Twitter and text and now podcast. But the Bill Brommel cartoon, which I thought was genius, you know, de Blasio wearing his mask over his mouth, even though, let's be clear, don't forget 2020 when he told us all to go out to the bars and celebrate March 15th. Thanks. Um, But now the mask is over his eyes. And the fact that he campaigned in 2013 on A Tale of Two Cities, 
you know, you parade your black son on the telly and it's all about making sure that this city is equitable and you can't even be bothered to go to this jail that is committing egregious offenses against, you know, New Yorkers. And then also you have this neighborhood jail idea and we know NIMBY is real. We know Democrats definitely don't always support equity. I get that. I know it. I lived on the Upper West Side for 20 years. However, the fact that he sort of just like dropped it. (laughs) It's like, I had this idea of, you know, closing Rikers and trying to solve this this jail crisis. Oh, never mind. I'm just going to go to Iowa, New Hampshire and kick it and have this failed presidential bid and just like drop it. As As though he never even championed this idea. So this we have this mayor who's on his way out. Lame duck doesn't even begin to to define who he is. And you don't even bother talking to corrections officers or the incarcerated individuals who were there. What the hell did you do then? What do you do? Like, why? Why did you waste time? Because he was like, well, I don't want it to be a photo op and a distraction. Well, actually, if you go there and you don't talk to anyone who's who's currently in in imprisoned or the people who are working there with limited resources they're dealing with limited staff because of covid and all types of other assaults that are going on in the prison in the jail um by prisoners on by those who are incarcerated those um who were dealing with so many different challenges what's the point of going then actually yeah if you are going to go and not speak to anyone you are wasting time you're wasting their time and my time and i guess his time i mean i don't know what he's doing these days so i just I'm so frustrated with these last few de Blasio months. I am curious, though, about our friend Eric Adams. And having been in the police force for some time, um, whether or not he'll come with a renewed sense of, okay, let's let's solve this, this problem together. Or because crime is rising and folks are getting their Rolexes stolen on the Upper East Side, if he's going to start cracking skulls and say, well, let's fill up Rikers to the brim. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, Eric Adams right now for me is like a bit of a wild card. One other interesting policing related development this week is a judge barred NYPD officers from accessing sealed arrest records without a court order, which on paper Mm-hmm. has been the law since 1976, which is when uh, this practice of sealing arrest records began. However, in practice practice, 800 members of the NYPD have had access to them. They freely shared those sealed records with members of the press, quite possibly even including yours truly. And uh, they haven't really been very sealed. Now, They're going to have to go and get a court order first. Shout out to the Bronx defenders for pushing to make this happen. The NYPD is is screaming about how foul this is. Uh, Dermot Shea, in an op-ed in the Daily News, called it a serious setback for public safety ahead of the decision, anticipating it and saying officers wouldn't be able to get information about people who maybe had done lots of bad things, but all those records are sealed. Um, a present about half of all the arrests from 2014 to 2018 have been sealed. But of course, having a sealed system in which the NYPD has completely open and free access uh, largely defeats the point. And with that, 
staying with uh, transparency and the frequent lack of it from this administration, uh, let's bring on our guest, Mark Canizera, the head of the Principals Union, to talk about how things have been working inside of schools and uh, for principals as they're trying to relate to uh, Tweed. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. So fill our listeners in on what's happening now with the, uh, with the vaccine mandate and what uh, people and people who work in the schools and parents should expect on Monday. Right. So um, as, as most people are aware, the, um, the appeals court uh, upheld the mandate for the vaccine uh, on Tuesday, I believe it was, Monday or Tuesday, and the uh, mayor announced that the uh, all folks must be vaccinated, all Department of Education employees must be vaccinated by 5 p.m. on Friday, and then those unvaccinated members will not be permitted to go to work on Monday. Um, as far as what to expect on Monday, I'm certainly hopeful that it's going to be better than it would have been had the mandate taken effect uh, this week on Tuesday as it was originally supposed to because we still had too many members unvaccinated, um, Department of Education employees unvaccinated for a smooth opening. And as it stands right now, I can tell you that the numbers are climbing, which is optim which gives us you know optimism, but there are specific areas around the city, uh, Staten Island probably being the one that stands out, where there are still a significant number of people unvaccinated in the schools and of particular concern, uh, paraprofessionals, uh, school safety agents, and some of our kitchen staff are of particular concern. But there are still areas, like I said, in particular schools with a significant number of teachers uh, as well unvaccinated. And, and those schools are going to need extra support come Monday. The last numbers I saw, which were from this previous Monday uh, had it that uh, I believe these are from the mayor about 97% of principals and 95% of teachers have uh, been vaccinated and 87% of non-teaching school staff have received at least one shot. Presumably, as you were saying, th th these numbers are going up now, uh, given the, the threat of being locked out of schools and removed from payroll. Should this be manageable given, given those numbers uh, should should there be an, enough qualified people around to sort of fill those holes where they do show up and where they're clustered in staten island uh, in, in certain job functions and do you have confidence that the uh, doe is on top of that process at this point okay so i mean you know when you hear numbers with high percentages it sounds you know very encouraging but those numbers are not evenly spread throughout every school uh, and, and every area in, in the city. So, you know, you may have some schools that are at 100% with most of their um, departments, but you'll have other schools that are far below that average as well. So those that, that's where the concerns are gonna be. And, and I think something you hit on just a moment ago is also critical. It's, are we going to be able to fill in um, positions or, or replace people with substitutes that are qualified to do the jobs um, that have been lost. And, and I've been using this example the last several days. It's very difficult for us to find 
qualified teachers to teach advanced placement courses, you know, AP physics and calculus uh, in particular, those high level math and science courses are very difficult to find people um, to, to come in. It's, it's difficult for schools to find those folks when, you know, we're not under a, a staffing crunch. Um, and then there are, you know, special education teachers who, who need to, by law, be licensed in special education and paraprofessionals who are required uh, in some cases um, on a student's individualized education plan uh, to support the students. It's going to be those particular areas where I'm seeing a, a significant problem. And let's not also discount the fact that we just started school three weeks ago. Um, for the youngsters, the, the three, four and five year olds and six year olds even that attend school, um, they may have just gotten comfortable with their teacher. Um, their parent may have been dealing with a very emotional and upset child the first couple of days due to the change. Um, and now that we're expecting or, or most people should, most students are comfortable uh, with their teacher now and finally going home happy. Now we're going to have that disruption in those cases where the lower grade teachers are being replaced and, and the students are going to have to get used to someone brand new all over again. So uh, that's a concern as well. So Mark, hi, this is Christina here. Um, one, hi. thank you for coming on FAQ. And two, thank you for trying to spearhead New York school children uh, through this tumultuous time. I wanted to follow up though about sub substitute teachers. Um, just because I'm, I'm assuming that there's gonna be a disproportionate need for those teachers. And I know you mentioned AP classes, but where are you pulling this, this kind of new group from? Uh, and how are you making sure that they are uh, sort of the, the level of quality that we've grown accustomed to with subs over the past few years? Well, I mean, look, that's a, that's a real concern, and that's for the Department of Education and, and the mayor to address. Um, and, and that's been one of our uh, talking points as well, that, you know, it's not just a body in a classroom. It has to be a qualified person uh, you know, to stand in front of children. And, you know, you will hear a lot of uh, statistics around the number of substitutes we have, but we don't hear specifically what they're qualified to teach and are they willing to come back to work every single day and take a consistent class um, through the journey of a school year. There are many, many substitutes that have their name in that pool who are interested in working one or two days a week. They may be retired. Um, they may be otherwise engaged with family at home and, and they're not looking for full-time jobs, which is sort of the reason that they, um, you know, receive the sub-license and, and go to work from time to time. So those numbers are really misleading. We need to know exactly how many people are qualified to come back and work on a regular basis. And the city hasn't shared that data with us. Mm. What's your feeling more generally on, on how the city is doing with, with data sharing? Uh, you know, as a parent, this idea that they're giving out attendance numbers, but won't give the uh, numerator and the denominator for that. So, so in effect, you know, the, the number of students in the system right now is uh, really not confidence inspiring. Right. And, and that's, you know, that, that, that speaks to trust. Um, you know, the, the city will often share data uh, that they're proud of and, and makes them look good. And they will also often spin data. And it's, you know, it's pretty transparent. Anyone who pays attention realizes when they're doing it, um, but they will only share, <clears throat> share what they want to share in, in order 
to put a positive spin on something. Um, and they will hold back when they want to hold back. And, and that's what it appears they're doing right now with the attendance numbers. Do you have any expectation or hope that this potentially improves under a, uh, a new mayor next year uh, with, with the DOE going forward, or, or at least for the remainder of this school year, is your expectation sort of continuity with how things have gone up till now? Well, I mean, look, you know, there's always hope when the new administration is coming in and they're going to have their work cut out for them, especially the first several months. So I don't know how quickly they're going to be able to um, turn things around, but I am certainly hopeful that they start a fresh approach and a more transparent approach and an open and honest approach with folks. So um, I am looking forward to working uh, with the new administration and, and hopefully to help improve the school system going forward. Mark, when was the last time you spoke to Mayor de Blasio uh, about this or met with him? Well, so uh, the mayor himself, it's been it's been a, a, a little while, maybe a month or two, but we have met with all of his top aides from his first deputy to his chief of staff um, on a fairly regular regular basis, right up in bef uh, up until um, the mandate was going into effect. Um, and since then, uh, once the mandate was supposed to have gone into effect this week, we've been meeting with the Department of Education higher-ups uh, quite often. Is there anything that you're looking forward to within Adams administration, presumable Adams administration, uh, that would be a, a slight change from, say, what you've been working with in a de Blasio administration? <clears throat> specific well, things you'd, you'd like to uh, you, you'd like to see accomplished that haven't been up till now? Sure. I, I think that the specific uh, thing and the number one thing is I think we need to go back to a place where principals are trusted to make decisions um, that are in the best interest of their schools. Um, what, what I feel has been a misstep with this administration is they've tried to run 1,600 schools from City Hall. And anytime you try to do that, um, you, you run into too many specific situations and, and individual circumstances that really can't be successful based on a broad mandate or, or um, you know, pr a protocol that's, that's placed over everyone. So people are going to need to make decisions, you know, based on the information they have and, and make adaptations uh, that are best for their school. And then the second thing, which may be actually uh, tied for the first thing, is we need much better communication coming out of City Hall and or Tweed because the way things have happened for the last several years is the mayor on a Monday morning makes a press announcement, which is pretty short on details. And then principals are left trying to figure out what the details will be. And while they're trying to figure out those details, families are calling saying that they just heard an announcement from the mayor and asking for what that means specifically for their children and that school. And unfortunately, principals are unable to answer the questions because they have the same questions that they're trying to get answered. And they reach out to their superintendents and their superintendents don't know either because the superintendent found out via that Monday morning press announcement as well. So I'm hoping that we're able to be a lot more deliberate in policies and procedures that are rolling out, that principals are made aware of what they are, 
that they're able to ask questions uh, before any announcements are made so that they're so that ultimately when an announcement is made, they have answers for families and they can continue to establish some trust. I mean, principals work many, many months in, in a new school, many years when they've been there uh, to develop and keep the trust of the communities that they serve. And many of the things that have happened the last couple of years have eroded that trust and principals are still standing there as the answer person trying to um, reestablish it. So um, I, I would say it's better communication and more empowerment for principals so would be the two main things very broadly. What's happening with the uh, funding uh, that's apparently coming to, uh, to help hire staff to fill needs where needed? Well, we've been assured, and, and so far, I have to say that um, with the, the, the COVID relief money that's come in, the city and the department have kept the promise that where we do, where it's funding that is the issue in order to staff our schools, um, they make good on it. Sometimes it takes a little while. Um, sometimes people are left a little anxious uh, waiting for that funding, but they have been um, good and responsive when funding is needed in a particular area. Uh, the, the, the problem is sometimes they just hand you money and expect you to be able to solve all the problems. And when staff that you need is not available, uh, having the dollars isn't helpful. We have been meeting with the Department of Education since March. Um, we did the same thing last year, but we've been meeting with, with them since March and nowhere at no time did anyone express even, even the idea that the mayor might make this uh, a vaccine mandate rather than a vaccine or test mandate. Um, we were absolutely unprepared for it. Uh, we were notified, I think it was the evening before he announced it. Um, and the timing is, is terrible because it is exactly what you said. It's causing another disruption in a school year where we can ill afford a, a disruption. We went through the 2020 school year, you know, from March of 20 through the 2021 school year um, with disruption after disruption, changing policies, um, putting people through um, just unfair uh you know, putting them in unfair positions. Uh, may, principals really haven't had a vacation or slept since since March of 2020. And, and we felt that this year we'd be able to bring some stability back into the system. So you're absolutely right. If this was going to be a mandate, uh, the mandate should have been announced and implemented prior to the start of school. You know, we could have even given, or the mayor could have even given DOE employees up until Labor Day, September 6th, to you know be vaccinated or not. And if you recall, the 6th being Labor Day, the 7th and 8th being Rosh Hashanah, and the 9th and 10th being school days with only staff and no students involved, we would have had from the 6th to the 13th to be able to address staffing concerns. And we would have had all summer for people to written, to understand that they had to be vaccinated and been able to upload their, their proof of vaccination by the 6th. So even if it was later into the summer, it still could have been accomplished. Waiting until, you know, three weeks into the school year and originally two weeks into the school year uh, only accomplishes further disruption, which is frustrating to families and parents and unsettling to, to kids. 
Now, Mark, you mentioned um, some borough distinctions. Uh, are you seeing any other demographic uh, disparities that are cause for concern or alarm? Well, I mean, look, the, the large high schools throughout the city are a, a concern where we're finding large numbers of, of people unvaccinated. Um, and then, you know, we're not seeing the, the disparities in, in schools where you may necessarily have a, a lower vaccination rate um, because sometimes the staff members don't necessarily live in the communities, but like Staten Island, a lot of the staff members do live in the community. So uh, Staten Island has a lower vaccination rate than perhaps the rest of the city, as do those schools. But where you might expect, you know, in some of our communities of color, which have, you know, where there are lower vaccination rates than the rest of the city, uh, you might expect to see that in the schools as well. And I'm not really getting reports of that. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. And again, we're talking about the staff members and not the students right now. Right, right. How many uh, exemption requests from the uh, vaccine mandate uh, have your members put in? Do you know how many of those have been accepted or declined? And uh, are there any required disclosures for, uh, uh, for people with exemptions? So we, we have about 6,400 active members and 150 actually submitted for an exemption request. Um, I do not have the data on how many have been accepted. I have heard from an overwhelming number of people who have been denied. So I'm thinking that very few will actually receive uh, an exemption or an accommodation request of the 150. Um, and what was the the well, last part of that question? Sorry. The, the, the last part is, uh, do do people with exemptions have to disclose that to parents or anyone else. Uh, but I'm also curious if uh, you, you expect there might be legal proceedings involving those members whose exemption requests have been denied uh, from the union well, or otherwise. They, they do not have to disclose um, the reason that they were granted an exemption or an accommodation. Um, the fact that there won't be in the building um, will, will, be clear enough indication that either they've opted to, um, you know, go on leave just because they're not gonna, they're refusing the vaccine, or because they've been granted an exemption or accommodation. Because if you're granted the exemption or accommodation, uh, the mayor has said that you will, although you'll remain on payroll, you will not be in the buildings. So um, they will be working elsewhere. So that you know, those folks just won't won't be there. Um, as far as you know, lawsuits. You know, I can anticipate, I, I don't have any information of, of who's going to do that, but I can anticipate somewhere along the line, someone is going to sue. I would, I would think that would be, um, you know, just a, a, an educated guess. Mark, thank you for taking this time. Um, a question as a parent here. Um, what, what is it that, uh, the, the, the parents and other people who are around but not working in the school system may not know or appreciate about uh, principals and other administrators and uh, the work that they're doing. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm a parent also of, of three children and I was a middle school principal for a number of years. And I think like myself, the overwhelming majority of principals and administrators uh, care deeply about their students and that's why they're in the job that, they, that they're doing. And, and they often feel that their job is difficult enough 
but sometimes the administration, um, you know, throws barrels in front of them and makes it even more difficult. But I, I think people should know that the majority of principals and assistant principals work literally between 12 and 16 hours a day, six, sometimes seven days a week, quite often in the building and at other times at home. Um, the last 18 and 19 months, principals have, phones have been ringing off the wall from the situation room, um, telling them sometimes at 11 o'clock at night that they have to notify families that a classroom or a school is being closed the following day. Um, people sometimes have the perception that our jobs are until three o'clock, 10 months a year. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. And in, in, in fact, I think that, um, you know, our folks probably work more hours than most people uh, in many, many areas where you would think otherwise. So I, I think it's the time, it's the commitment, it's the love for kids, and it's the overwhelming um, feeling of trying to do the right thing despite sometimes a system that doesn't support the heroic work that they do. And, um, you know, they go home, they go home sometimes in tears. They go home worried about children. They go home worried about staff members. And they're constantly thinking about trying to improve things in their school for their staff and their students. And, and I know firsthand just from working with people and, and hearing and seeing the commitment that it's, it's amazing. And, and people that aren't aware of that who are sending their kids to school, if they possibly had the opportunity or have the opportunity, they should try to get involved in their school and, and they'll see firsthand and they may be even able to be able to help uh, improve it and offer some, some insight as to how uh, the school can run even better. So you brought up earlier the idea of um, empowering principals to make, make decisions and figure out what's working inside of their schools. I, I feel like the, the circle here has been sort of back and forth, that, that Mike Bloomberg created a number of smaller schools within schools, tried to give more agency and autonomy to principals. There was some pushback from teachers about that uh, in, involving, among other things, the, uh, uh, the work rules. I've, and de Blasio, in some ways, seems to have corrected for that, maybe not by giving more power directly to the uh, teachers, but by having things really run out of central and, and out of the DOE, um, decisions coming out from there. Do you see that potentially correcting under a, uh, a Mayor Adams and his DOE? Does that need correction? Um, where is the sweet spot th uh, with all that? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it absolutely needs correction right now. Um, it, it, as far as the sweet spot, no matter what you do in a system this large, there will be some uh, messiness and, and you know, th things that need to be addressed. But in a system that's working properly with 1,600 schools from diverse communities throughout the city of New York, a one-size-fits-all approach is never going to work, um, you know, for, for everyone. And the theory needs to be, let's hire the best principals we can possibly find. And from among them, let's hire the best superintendents that we possibly can find. And then we have to put faith and confidence and trust in them to do what's right. Um, 
you know, when they're not doing what's right, they, that needs to be corrected on an individual basis. But the only way for a community to succeed is to have someone on the ground who has all of the information and all of the, um, the data coming in to make decisions that are best for the community. Now we have parents holding us accountable for their, for the, for the school system, for the school's success and their child's success. We have teachers holding us accountable that we're doing right and supporting them the right way. Um, we have superintendents holding us accountable to make sure we're following all of the, the legal requirements. So with all of those folks holding school leaders accountable, the system should be able to work with the school leader actually being able to make a decision and lead the school. And again, where those decisions are not being made in the best interest of families and children, that needs to be corrected. But instead, we're, um, we're, we're actually stifling the creativity of many, many people who could be doing wonderful things for their communities. Last question here, and thank you again for, uh, for taking the time. So squinting, from my perspective, comparing this year and last year, it seems like the city rejiggered the rules to try to have fewer disclosures, less classroom and school closings. And one of the practical things that happened that seems to relate to that is uh, cutting the hours of the situation room. So it's on more or less school day hours. It's I think it's 7 to 3.30 now on uh, weekdays. Um, and it was open till 7.30 p.m last year uh is the situation room running the way it should uh are disclosures working the way they should so that that that, that uh, parents and uh people who work within schools are being properly informed uh is the rate of testing which started off at twice a week and is now up to once a week uh right like like how, how do your members think that all of this is working this year right well you know a, a lot of the things regarding testing and such, you know, we, we try to leave that to the medical professionals who, you know, are probably better positioned to make those calls than we are. But um, we are in a, in a place now where, yeah, we're having testing of 10% of, of a population once a week. But the fact is, it's 10% of the students who have submitted consent forms to be tested. And in some schools, there's a high percentage of students who have submitted consent forms and in other schools, a low percentage of students who have consent, uh, submitted consent forms. So essentially, in, in areas where you do not have, you know, high compliance on the consent forms, you're going to be testing the same children over and over again. So that's probably not the, the best uh, way to try to get data on whether or not uh, you, you're seeing an uptick in cases in a particular school especially if somebody or a large number of people are asymptomatic. Um, you know, as, as far as the situation room is concerned, um, yeah, they've been, in, in my opinion, they've been overwhelmed and, and they've been getting, um, you know, calls that they're unable to, to get back to people on. And then when they do get back to people, suddenly, you know, they're pressuring principals that it's an emergency. So an example is, a child is tested in school on Tuesday, the results don't come back or the situation room doesn't have the results say until Friday, they're closed on Saturday, and then Sunday afternoon, 
They're calling a whole bunch of principals saying, you know, you need to pick up your phone. You need to answer your phone now. You need to get to people now, regardless of what the principals may be doing on, on a Sunday with family. Um, because, you know, they, it's an emergency that we get to the, to the community to let them know that there's, there's been an exposure. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, theoretically, that same child had been in school on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday as well. So, you know, there, there are some things that seem, sort of contradict what you would think is, is best practice here. Um, and, you know, it, 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 right now we, we, we have advocated that the Situation Room uh, stay open later. Uh, whether or not that's actually going to happen, I don't know. But the other rules that, that change that may actually mitigate against some of this is it seems that now if a child is positive, um, the, the close contacts will not be required to quarantine unless they were closer than three feet for a period of time or unmasked. So it seems that we're going to have far fewer students quarantining, um, you know, in the very near future anyway. So that might help reduce some of the overload on the situation room. Hey, that could also have other consequences. Absolutely could. I mean, I, like I said, I'm not a doctor and I don't know what the outcomes will be and what consequences will be there. Um, but yeah, it certainly could because it's a, it's a change in protocol from the last uh, 18 months. Mark, thank you again for uh, taking the time and coming on FAQ. We, uh, we really appreciate it and hope you'll uh, come back on as, uh, as things proceed uh, over this year, over this school year and with everything to come. It's my pleasure and I'd be happy to come back. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Mark Kenizaro, the president of the Council of Schools, Supervisors, and Administrators. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, get a shot, wash your hands, and give me my six feet. We'll see you next week.